Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Atlantis Ocean Podcast, the podcast that covers everything going on in the vast world of ocean biodiversity. New Atlantis is tackling the twin challenges of biodiversity loss and climate change by aligning community, government, industry, and individual benefit with the improving ecological health of our oceans. I'm JJ Ramberg. is Octavio Aburto. Octavio is a professor of marine biology at Scripps Institute of Oceanography and the recipient of the World Wildlife Fund Catherine Fuller Science for Nature Fund Fellowship, as well as a professional photographer. He's a marine ecologist who uses science to influence ocean conservation, and he was an early advisor to us here at New Atlantis Labs. Octavio's enthusiasm for protecting our ocean is infectious. You cannot walk away from a conversation with Octavio without feeling optimistic about the future. Enjoy. Octavio, hi. Thank you for joining me. No, thank you for this invitation. And I'm very happy to be here and to share with you many things that we are doing in favor of the oceans. I've been really looking forward to this conversation in part because, as I said in the intro, your passion for the ocean and your excitement is truly infectious. And we've learned so much from you here. So I'm happy to share that with everybody else. So before we dive into what you're doing, I'd love to just start with why you're doing it. How did you get interested in the ocean in the first place? Well, I think that this passion, as you call it, started when I was a kid. I used to watch all these movies, of course, Jack Custom movies, but also in Mexico, we have a ocean hero. His name was Ramon Bravo, and he was a filmmaker. And, and also, I think he, he was an oceanographer as well, but he used to have this TV show in one of the open TV channels in, in Mexico back in the 80s. And what I remember is this expedition that actually he did along the Gulf of California he was using this inflatable boat and he was traveling along different islands and along different communities in the Gulf of California. So I thought, or I think that that was the thing that I want to do. And uh, back in 1990, I went to study marine biology in La Paz, in the Gulf of California. So I think that was the starting of what I am doing or I, what I have been doing for the last 30 years. And you could have gone a lot of ways if you're interested in ocean conservation. Why science? I also like to understand things and to answer questions. I always, I am taking a, a bath or a shower <laughs> or in, in the garden or in beach. And I always am thinking the answers about questions, especially how nature functions and why a fish eat another fish or why an ecosystem function in, in this way or in the other, or how our activities as humans affect these functions, this, this life. So I think that I never lost the, the spirit of answering questions. So science is the, it's as well a, another passion, not only the protection of nature, it's also answering questions about nature. 
Let's get to some of those questions that you've asked and then you have answered or you're continuing to try and answer because the work you're doing has so much to help influence the world in how we conserve the oceans. You've done so much work with mangroves, if maybe we can start there. And you've been working in Mexico for over 20 years now. What have you seen change and what have you learned? Well, the first thing that I learned about mangroves is that they are a very, very important ecosystems. They cover a very, very few area, less than 1% of coastal areas in the planet is covered by, by mangroves, but they produce a lot of uh, services, not only for humans, for many, many species. There are different species of mangroves. In the planet, there are around 50, 50 species of mangroves that are trees that evolve from terrestrial plants and they basically conquer this hostile environment where the ocean meets the land. So it's a very hostile environment because it reaches very high temperatures, high salinities. So these trees are always in constant stress, but that is why they have evolved in a very interesting way because their metabolic processes are very important and actually help us a lot. In particular, they develop a function to capture a lot of CO2 compared with other plants. They sequester 50 times faster CO2 than any other plant in order to extract carbon for their metabolic rate. And also they store this carbon as well, uh, five times larger or bigger than other forests. So because they live in all this stress, they have developed strategies to obtain CO2 and obtain water in different ways than other trees. And they help us a lot because they help reducing the effect of the CO2 that we send to the atmosphere. They help us sequestering and storage in this carbon in many ways, but also they provide habitat for many species, especially species of fish or invertebrates like blue crabs that uh, later become one of the most important fisheries for us. Snappers, snooks, mojarras. So all these species spend their first years of their life in this mangrove forest and then they leave and they migrate to offshore reefs. And it's there where we can catch them and they produce very, very important fisheries. So why we don't protect them? Because this is the other important thing that I have found. We have been losing many of these forests in, in the majority of the countries. And in the last 50 years, we have lost 50% of the mangroves that we have in the planet. Why do you think people haven't risen up to stop this in the same way that we do for forests, for instance? If mangroves are so important and provide so many ecosystem services, why doesn't everyone realize this? Well, one is because everything that I have told you in the last minutes, scientists and other people that know about 
all this importance, we forgot about sharing this knowledge, mm -hmm. sharing all this information with massive audiences or graded audiences. And this is one of the, the failures that we have had just in the last years is when we have put more efforts sharing all this information with the public. So this is one thing. And the other thing, very important thing that we have learned or we are learning is that different from the deforestation of other forests, like the Amazon forest, mangrove deforestation occur in a very slow and tiny areas. So, for example, in, in other forests, in less than a month, you can see a lot of area deforested because that wood, that um, trees are being consumed to build our homes, to build many, many things that we, that we need. So the deforestation in this kind of forest happens very fast. But in mangroves, the deforestation occurs very slowly and start in a fragmentation way. We don't clear big areas. So you, for example, see in areas where there is a lot of tourism, for example, a hotel that built a parking lot. So they mm -hmm. just remove some trees to build this parking lot. Or in an area where there is a shrimp farming, they build one pond and then one year later they build another pond. So deforestation doesn't happen very, very fast. So these are the two things that I believe have contributed to these deforestation trends. The good news is that the rate, the speed of how this deforestation happens has been reduced in the last 15 years. So back in the 80s, we had three or 5% of deforestation annually in the majority of the countries. Right now, it's less than 1%. So the good news is that we have reduced the speed. The bad news is that we continue losing mangroves every year. I think it's important to note also when we talk about sequestering carbon is not only are you losing the ability to sequester carbon under deforestation of mangroves, but you're also releasing carbon that has already been That's sequestered. Right. That's right. And this is very, very, very important because we have learned that if you remove one meter of sediment in a mangrove forest, is removing CO2 that was accumulated in that one meter in the last 1,000 years. Wow. So going down every meter in a mangrove sediments is that traveling in time 1,000 years. We have in Baja California, for example, we have estimated that some mangroves have been growing on top of themselves for five or 6,000 years. And in the Caribbean, there are some atolls, some islands that mangroves have been growing on top of themselves for 20,000 years. It's unbelievable how these forests have been growing. And as you, as you said, we not only lose the, the machine that is helping us sequestering mangroves, that is the tree, itself, also 
we start removing CO2 that has been accumulating for millennia. So it's very important to understand that. And especially when somebody or a company comes and destroy a mangrove forest, but also release all this uh, CO2. Well, first of all, we, we should stop that. But if this happens, the fines or the punishment should be very big, especially because they put back into the atmosphere tons of tons of carbons that were sequestered for thousands of years. Yes, the tragedy of the commons. One organization benefits and everybody else suffers. One thing that you do that is so smart and obviously near and dear to what we care about here at New Atlantis, where you're an advisor, is you've put a price tag on all of these things. So you've been able to go in and say, here is what it is worth in monetary terms. Can you talk to me a little bit? You talked about carbon a little bit, but also when it comes to fisheries. We need different strategies to start involving people, societies, governments, companies in order to understand that it's better to have ecosystems in good health rather than degrade them. Not only because we receive things like, for example, oxygen that we need to breathe or water, fresh water to drink, not only for that, because we have demonstrated that when we have ecosystems in good health, they provide more economic benefits. We, they provide money for people. So we need to explore different strategies. And one strategy is what is called the market-oriented conservation strategies. That means that we can estimate how much goods and services an ecosystem can provide for us. And then once we estimate the amount of that good or that service, we can put a value, an economic value, a, a price tag or dollar sign to that value. So for example, in I was telling you about the fisheries. Yes, we can estimate how many fish per hectare a mangrove forest can produce. And then you say this amount of fish is produced per hectare and I receive this amount of money per that amount of fish. You can estimate how much is the value of a hectare of mangrove just in terms of fishery products. In fact, that was my PhD thesis and I was able to demonstrate that one hectare of mangrove in the Gulf of California, but it could be the same estimation for many other places, one hectare of mangrove in the Gulf of California produces $37,500 per year just in fishery products. And in the same way, you can do it for other services. There are services, for example, the coastal protection. So in this case, you not necessarily will receive a money for the service of protection, but you can save money mm -hmm. if you have the mangrove. For example, it has been demonstrated that if, if a hurricane comes and you have a mangrove protection, your house or your buildings or your infrastructure won't suffer a damage. 
But if you don't have the mangrove and a hurricane comes, most of the time, homes, buildings, roads suffer a damage. So if you compare how much money you will save or you need to pay for an insurance, you can estimate or you can put that value to the coastal protection service that the mangrove provides. In many areas, for example, Florida, it has been shown that every hectare of mangrove, it saves money in infrastructure around $2,000 every year, yes, every hurricane season. So this is another way to give a value. So this is the way that we have been demonstrating that it's better to have healthy mangroves rather than degraded mangroves. But we need to remember that there are other strategies. Not everything should be related with money. We should do many of these things also by ethical and moral principles. Yeah, I think it's really good to attack it from all angles because People will relate to different things. And if you just layer them on top of each other, everyone will understand the great importance of conservation. You mentioned a few times this marine reserve that you're working with in Mexico. Talk to me about the science you've been doing to better understand the health of that reserve. Yes, marine reserves or marine protected areas are places where many human activities are manage, control, or even prohibit it. In fact, science has demonstrated that what is called the fully protected marine reserves or fully protected areas are the ones that are producing many of these services that I just mentioned in the maximum capacity. And communities that live inside these fully protected areas or very close to these protected areas are receiving a lot of benefits. So what kind of things are prohibited or controlled or managed in these areas? For example, anchoring, deforestation, fishing, mining. So all these activities that basically destroy the ecosystems or maintain them in a very unhealthy state basically are removed or are prohibited. And in Mexico, we have different examples of these protected areas from fully protected areas to lightly or minimal protected areas or areas that don't have any protection. So we have been monitoring what has been happening in these three conditions, in these three reefs or in these three areas with mangrove forests, And we have seen amazing things that are happening in those areas that have been fully protected. One in particular is called Cabo Pulmo, that it's in the Gulf of California. It has 25 years without any extractive activities. And you go to that area, jump in the water, and it's like traveling in time maybe 50 or 100 years. It's every time that I snorkel or dive in Cabo Pulmo, it's like watching again the documentaries that I was mentioning to you from uh, Cousteau in the 80s or the 70s when he visited the Gulf of California. And basically it was 
not pristine necessarily, but it was very, very natural. I remember one of these Cousteau documentary, they were flying in a, in a helicopter and there was this shot from the Bay of Cabo San Lucas and it was completely without hotels, without homes. The whole Bay of Cabo San Lucas in the 79 or 80, it was almost pristine, almost natural. Uh, wow. Right now you go to Cabo San Lucas, it's just 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And it's, um, it's crazy, it's crazy. It's a, a lot of hotels, a lot of people. But you go to this other area, Cabo Pulmo, that the community decided to protect the reefs. And you see sharks, you see groupers, you see snappers, all these fish, all these reefs that they were common, they were natural uh, back in 40 years ago or 50 years ago. And you can see them in that condition. So fully protection are the things that we need to promote because they are showing that these areas can recover and can provide a lot of benefits for people. As a scientist, Octavio, what do you do to monitor these areas? How do you see, you know, beyond the kind of obvious, I go down and suddenly I see sharks where I didn't before, or I see just more abundance of life where I didn't before. What do you do as a scientist to understand the benefits? Yes, we go and we count and measure all the species that we can in these reefs. The technique is called visual transects. You can do it with cameras as well. And, and right now there are a lot of techniques that use cameras and the technology is, is better right now. But back in 30 years ago, when I was starting with this monitoring program, we use our scuba gear, scuba diving, and you use a, a metric tape and we swim 50 meters. It's a transect of 50 meters long and five meters wide. And in that area that basically covers 250 square meters, you identified each species. We, we receive a training before we, we die. We need to memorize. We need to know all these species that live in the reefs, fish and invertebrates. So we swim along this transect and we count each of these species and we have a PVC tube divided every five centimeters. So we have a paper that you can write on the water. It's a special paper. And every time that you see a species, you record the name, you record the number of individuals that you see, and you record the size of these individuals. So we, every time that we swim in a reef, we perform four of these visual transects, and we repeat this methodology every time that, that we can. Most of the time we, we do it every year. And for the last 25 years, we have been doing the same in 100 reefs along the Gulf of California, from the tip of the Gulf of California, Cabo San Lucas, all the way to the Midriff Islands in the north part of the Gulf of California. How has technology changed that work, or are you still doing it in that same way? We are still doing it because there are different pros and cons for each technique. Uh, in the case of 
visual transects, still the human eye is the most accurate, most precise method that you can have. But of course, that requires more time and more people and in some way more money in order to cover more area. With video, with cameras, you can do it with less people. You can do it in less time. But then all these photographs and and videos that you record, you need to go back to the lab and analyze all this information. So there are pros and cons. Some of them, you can do it faster in the field. Some of them, you will require more time in the lab, but still the precision is more accurate if people do do it in, in the field. But there are combinations. We are using a combination of techniques, especially because there are some species that with the scuba gear, with the scuba equipment, when we release bubbles and when we release the air that we are breathing, uh, we make noise. So there are some species that can hear you from the distance and they never will approach when you are mm. doing these surveys. So, for example, right now we are using techniques that involve cameras that use bait. We can put a small bait in these cameras. You, you use two GoPros and they are called stereo cameras, traps, because when you use two cameras at the same time, it's like the stereoscopic vision that we have with our eyes. So our eyes are, the stereoscopic vision that we have is very important because you can understand how far is a species, how far is an animal from you. And also you can have a a dimension, yes? You, You can understand if it's a tiny fish or it's a big fish because you have two eyes. When we build this, technique using two cameras. In the, uh, later in the lab, there are softwares that combine the two recording files. And in the software, you can have stereoscopic vision. So you can measure the size of the animals that, we, that the cameras recorded. So these traps are using bait and you leave it there for one hour, then you come back and grab the camera. So there are species like, for example, sharks that can be recorded with this camera. And it's more difficult to record it when you are using your scuba gear. So there is a lot of combinations of methods, but the most important thing doesn't matter if if you do it visually or if you do it with technology. The most important thing is that, that it's a systematic monitoring. And in this case, this year, we are celebrating 25 years of monitoring the Gulf of California. And we will have an expedition that will depart from Cabo San Lucas all the way to the north part of the Gulf of California. And we will repeat many things that we have been doing in the last 25 years. And it's, it's, we are very enthusiastic, motivated to repeat these surveys, this this particular year. And let's see what we'll discover this time. 
Tell me more about this expedition, Octavio, because you're going to do the same measurements that you've done for the past 25 years, which is an incredible just timeline that you have of benefit to this marine reserve and leaving the ocean alone. But you're also going to be studying some new things, I understand. Yes, we will try to study the different functional groups or layers in the ecosystems. There are animals or there are species that are the ones that create the home for other species, like, for example, turf, algae, corals. All these species are called architectural species, and they create habitats for many others. Yeah, explain turf to us. Turf are very tiny algaes that we have microalgaes that live mostly in the water column, are part of the plankton. And then we have macroalgae, so basically algae that you can see with the naked eyes. Yes, the microalgae, you need a microscope to see them. But the macroalgae, you can see them with a naked eye. However, you have the kelp forest that can reach 30 meters high, and of course, you will see it. They, they create forests. But then there are macroalgae that only grow one centimeter. It's like when you have a garden, in your garden you, you have trees and you have some plants that can reach three, five feet. But then you have the grass, yes? And that grass basically just cover a few centimeters. There are plants that have a, adapted to just grow in a very tiny, but they they have a lot of production, yes? they The grass grow very fast and they die and they are replaced by other grass. So the turf is almost the same thing. They cover rocks. They grow just one centimeter, but they are so dense and they are basically grow so fast that create the perfect habitat for many species, especially bacteria. And it has been demonstrated that when a grazer, it could be a fish or it could be a sea urchin or it could be another species, they grass on that turf, they not only receiving the benefits of the turf itself or the grass itself, also they eat the mucus that have a lot of bacteria, and this is also the, the food for all these species. So turf, it's very, very important. Although it's very tiny, it's very, very important. And this time, we will study that layer of the ecosystem. Then we will continue studying the layer that we have been monitoring in the last 25 years that are corals, sea fans, octopuses, all these invertebrates, but also all the fish that we have been monitoring in all this time. And then also we will include other groups like plankton and sharks or bigger animals with these cameras. So we will expand our monitoring program in this expedition. And also uh, we will try to use new techniques to study them. 
So when you talk about turf, for instance, you're basically, if I understand this correctly, trying to understand coverage. Is that right? Yes. There is a technique to understand the coverage of of these species that create habitats for many others. That technique is in the same transect that I explained to you. We can count species like a grouper, like snapper, or like an octopus. But along this transect, also, for example, every five meters, you can go and check what architectural species is every five meters or every meter along this transect. So you go and see if it's a turf, if it's a coral, if it's a siphon. And that is another way to measure the cover of all these species that are foundational species or architectural species. That is the way that we estimate the cover of these species. You wrote a paper recently or co-wrote a paper recently, Warming and Marine Heat Waves Tropicalize Rocky Reefs Communities in the Gulf of California. What do you expect to find because of the warming and marine heat waves when you go on this expedition? Well, the Gulf of California, it's a very special place and actually has been categorized as one of the hotspots in the planet. Why it's um, a very special place? Because it's an internal sea. The mouth of this sea was opened five million years ago and started creating a, a condition that it's unique in the planet. There are different regions along this Gulf of California, the mouth or the southern part, and it's when we see more tropical conditions, very similar to what we can see in Oaxaca or in Ecuador. Many of these species that are influenced by the equatorial current is what you can see in the tip of Baja or in, in the mouth of the Gulf of California. And then in the center part of the Gulf of California, you see a species that have evolved with the conditions that are more frequent in, in the Gulf of California. It's a combination between tropical waters and cold water from the northern Gulf of California. So it is actually, it is called the Gulf of California province. It's a very unique conditions that mix water, tropical waters, but temperate waters as well. And then in the northern Gulf of California, there is another conditions because it's very cold coming from the deep water of the Gulf of California, but also is mixed with what used to be the delta of the Colorado River. Maybe later we can talk about that, but in the last century, the Gulf of California lost 99% of the fresh water that used to come from the Colorado River because all the dams that have been built along the U.S. side. This is another, another topic, but all this fresh water, all this cold water created a unique environment in the Gulf of California, and it's, it's the third region along the Gulf of California. So what we have seen in the last 10 years is that the tropical condition 
and the tropical species that we see in the southern part of the Gulf of California are moving in northward direction. Mm. So that means that more often we see tropical conditions in the center part of the Gulf of California. We haven't seen it in the upper Gulf yet, but the models and the theories are saying that all these tropical conditions, all these warming conditions will be more frequent in the central and the upper part of the Gulf of California. Does that concern you because of the change in species that can survive in that kind of water? It is concerned because this planet has been evolving and these ecosystems have been evolving along the history of the planet, but we never have seen it happening as fast as we are seeing. That is the concern because the species cannot adapt and humans will need to, if we want to survive, let's see, in the next uh, centuries, uh, we will need to adapt very fast to these conditions if we don't find a way to reduce the climate change or the, the reduction of the of the CO2 in the atmosphere, we will need to adapt very, very fast. The conditions that we we have been experiencing in the last 10,000 years as humans or as humanity are changing in the last 300. And this is very, very important, very dramatic. Well, it's amazing, Octavio, that because of the science that you're doing, you're giving the rest of us insight into what is happening. But not only the science you're doing, but your photos as well, which are beautiful. And so for anyone listening, because it's the best storytelling that one can possibly do in the ocean is the visuals. And your photographs really tell a story of what's happening under underneath the water. Where can people find them if they want to look at some of your photographs? Well, they can visit my website. It's octaviaburto.com. I have a a website where I have been telling stories, actually some of the stories that I share with you today, they can find them in my website. But also, as you mentioned, photos and videos are very important way to tell stories. I have tried to do more science communication efforts in the last 10 years, especially because what I mentioned, yes, if people don't know and if people don't understand what is happening, we won't be able to change these trends or these big problems that we have. So I have been trying to do more science communication efforts. So my photos have been used to tell stories in different platforms, including National Geographic. I have been collaborating with National Geographic since 15 years ago, I am an explorer, but also I am participating in other organizations like the International League of Conservation Photographers that are using photography to tell stories about all these big problems or big issues that humans are facing. So you can Google Octavio Burto photographs and you will see many of these images that I have been used to tell these stories. 
Well, thank you for taking the time to tell us so many of the stories and you have so many more. And I've got two more questions for you. One is when you come back from your expedition with all of your new findings, we would love to talk to you again to just hear what you've learned. You game for that? Yes. Yes, of course. We need to share all these findings and all these results with a lot of people. So I will be here with you sharing what we found. Amazing. And then the next one is in your dream, just picture you are in a boat in the marine reserve that you've been visiting for the past 20 years and that people have been monitoring for the past 25 years and you're in a boat and it's 10 years from now and you look out and in your dream, everything's going according to plan and people are focused on conservation and your science and your photos have told amazing stories. What do you see? Well, we will see better ecosystems, ecosystems that are more resilient, ecosystems that are not only helping us to survive into the future, also ecosystems that will continue providing the home for many other species that also deserve to live in this planet. And sometimes we as humans, we are so selfish that we don't understand that other species deserve a better planet, a healthy planet, a healthy ecosystems. So I'm pretty sure that together we will be able to change this degradation path that we have followed in the last 30 to 100 years. Uh, more people, especially young people, understand the importance to protect the ecosystems and to restore what we have lost. So I'm pretty sure that in the next five years, many societies, many towns will join and start moving in the right direction. And we need to do it because it's the only way that humanity will prosper into the future. So I'm very optimistic that in the next 10 years, we will have a better planet and better ocean. Thank you for everything you do for the world. Thank you for being such an early supporter of New Atlantis Labs. You're amazing. Thank you for talking to me for the last hour. I learned so much from you and I can't wait to hear about your expedition. Yes, thank you, JJ. And thank you everybody that stay here and share this enthusiasm with you and with New Atlantis and, and with me. so much for listening today. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please follow us on Twitter. You can join our New Atlantis Labs conversation on Discord. Or if you have a comment about this particular episode, you can leave it on Good Pods. You can find all those links in our show description. See you next time.